Welcome to this week's Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. And I'm Mark Legier. Uh, thanks for having me again on the show, guys. I haven't been on in a few months. And uh, what we thought we'd do uh, for an episode in, in mid-January is uh, have a look back at 2022 and sort of the major issues and, and developments uh, in, in the last year. And then have a, a look ahead uh, to 2023 and what you guys are thinking about covering and who you're going to talk to. And also, we thought we'd add a, a special feature to this, something we haven't done before, which is we solicited questions from our, your listeners on, uh, on the things that they're thinking about going into 2023 and sort of asking for your, your views on them. And also what we did as well is we also reached out to uh, business leaders around the region uh, for their questions for you. So uh, I think we have a, a packed show um, and she had some good questions for some interesting discussion. We're doing Super. this a little bit uh, late, David, because uh, you started the year in, in Brazil spending time with family. Yeah, that's right. Three weeks. First time I'd taken three consecutive weeks off in over five years, although I ended up working a little bit while I was down there, but it was a nice vacation. Yeah, and you're you're wearing a t-shirt where Don and I have uh, warm sweaters on, so it looks like you're still in the in the mode of uh, being in Brazil. <laughs> that's right. I'm just not quite back. The mind, the body's here. The mind is there. I <laughs> don't blame you. Yeah, and um, his Portuguese is so much better too. <laughs> any any any, <laughs> any warm weather vacation for you, Don, or were you uh, hunkered down in Nova Scotia here with the rest of us? Oh no, I've got uh, I've got a couple of uh, trips planned. One with my I'm taking my entire family on a trip uh, in the middle of uh, February that I'm looking forward. We try to do these things with our kids and their kids uh, as often as we can. So yeah, that's that's one that I'm looking forward to. Very nice. Well, let's uh, let's dig into things. So, uh, David, why don't we start with you? Why don't we take a look back at, at kind of the major developments and issues that stand out for you from uh, last year? Yeah. So the podcast is about how do we foster sustainable uh, economic growth and prosperity in Atlantic Canada. It's been a priority of Don for a long time and myself for a very long time as well. So this is what we want to do. We want to talk to people that are doing interesting things. We want to try to influence positive change in the region. And I like, for example, you know, Don pushing SMRs, he's like a dog with a bone. So it's really cool how that's uh, played out over the last uh, 12 months. But I think the big issue for me, the biggest issue by a wide margin was the record level of population growth in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. PEI grew fast as well, but they've been on a positive trajectory for a number of years now. So that's the number one issue by far. And all of the things that that sort of come with that, right? The challenges around healthcare and the challenges around housing. Uh, in Moncton specifically, the, the, the continued challenges around uh, uh, health uh, uh, crime and homelessness. So the good news is we've proven that this region can grow. Uh, by the way, it's not just Moncton and Halifax. Uh, uh, Marishi had modest population growth. So did Bathurst. So did Edmonston. So if you go around the region, almost all of the small urban centers grew at least modestly. Uh, uh, last year in, in 2022. So we're bringing in immigrants, we're bringing in people from Ontario. Now we've got to make sure we can support this population growth because if we can't, uh, that'll dry up in a hurry. Yeah, and I would just add that, uh, you know, one of the things that I think we have proven in this region is that uh, it's hard to get economic growth without population growth. And the two are 
really tied closely together. You know, there are, there's lots of challenges with the kind of growth that the in population that we've had for sure. And there, we're, we'll probably talk about that a little later on in the program. But uh, you know, we for the first time in a, in in, a, in decades, so we have proven that we can add a lot of people to our population, and our unemployment number goes down, and the number of people working goes up. And one of the things that's happened this year, uh, you know, that's becoming very evident, is that governments are reaping a lot of extra revenue for that growth. And there are implications to that uh, increased revenue opportunity. Uh, and and what I noticed one of the questions has to do with taxes. And I think we will come back to that issue. But, you know, for a very long time, our region had to pay increasing levels of taxes with bo- about the same number of taxpayers. And uh, that's why we have the highest rates of taxation in the country, including HST, by the way, which is on virtually every purchase. Now we see uh, we have an opportunity, perhaps, to start to come more in line with the taxation levels in other parts of Canada. And I actually think that's really important for a recruitment point of view. You know, labor force is the other issue, I think, that continues to be a problem uh, in, in from 2022. We still have shortages of labor. But, you know, if we're going to attract and retrain, retain people in this region, we have to have competitive tax rates. And I hope governments understand that because it's going to be very hard to get doctors and nurses and other professionals to come to our region if the tax rates are out of line. So, you know, those, that's another part of think of what happened in, in 2022. Uh, what about looking ahead for you guys? You know, not so much your projections right now for what's, what's going to be important, but what are, what are the kinds of interviews you're going to be looking at doing? What are the sectors that you're going to explore a little bit more? Well, well, maybe I could jump in there just quickly. And you know, one of the things that uh, that I wrote about recently for my regular column in all the dailies in Atlantic Canada, the, the title was "The Futures Never Look Brighter." And you know, one of the things that David and I have found uh, uh, doing these podcasts, especially over the last year, is all the great things that are happening, all the things that are providing us with uh, you know a readiness for growth that we've really never had before. And we've talked about a lot of the sectors, of course, in that. We talked about a lot of things like the accelerators and incubators that are that are fostering entrepreneurial growth, uh, you know, in ocean tech and in the biosciences and a whole bunch of other things. And so I think what we'd like to do is continue to explore other sectors uh, and what their contribution can be to the economy. We just started the kind of a mini series on mining, for instance. Now, mining is not something that comes up in everyday conversation. (laughs) But, you know, uh, as somebody pointed out to, to us just this week, we couldn't be communicating the way we are today without mining and the minerals that mining produces. And if we're going to get to net zero by 2050, mining actually is a bigger and more important role in doing that. In fact, Sean Kirby of the Mining Association of Nova Scotia indicated that we're going to to need six times, six times the number of critical minerals to produce, uh, you know, EVs and and windmills and solar panels than we do today. And so we have to, you know, be more accepting of the fact that we're going to have to have more mines. And, uh, you know, so that's an example. And then and then looking ahead, I think there are a, a couple of sectors that I'd like to understand a little bit more about. One is healthcare. You know, there are obviously our healthcare is under great duress and and, and we've got to find, uh, you know, new ways of, uh, of managing healthcare. I, you know, I'm not sure it's 
just money. I think it's management that, that's a problem. So I think we, we should probably tackle that issue. I think the forestry industry is something that we have to come back to because it still plays uh, a key role. And, and, you know, we just did a, a, a podcast with Colin McDonald and, and the fishery uh, is a, is a, is a big uh, deal. Uh, we hope to have Glenn Cook of uh, Cook Agriculture on in the new year, to, you know, which is a, you know, thriving business, you know, so there's lots of other sectors that we need to explore and, and, and find out what they can do to contribute to more prosperity within our region. Yeah, and we hope to look at housing as well. And particularly, uh, I'd like to have Brandon Serlon from UNB to talk about modular construction mm-hmm. uh, and, and yeah. the, the idea of manufacturing buildings or pre-manufacturing buildings in, in uh, manufacturing spaces in, in, in inside and then just assembling them on the, on the facility. So we've got mm-hmm. lots of really good content for the listeners coming up, but there's a big risk and it may come up later. And I'm, I am worried about a pushback against immigration. We're seeing this nationally. There's a number of uh, high-profile economists that have come out asking for the federal government to put the brakes on immigration. We, there was a big editorial in the Globe and Mail uh, this week uh, with a similar focus. And these guys are looking at things in a macro basis, right? Uh, and I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago saying, don't listen to the economists, talk to the mayors. Because when you talk to these mayors in Summerside, in Yarmouth, in Woodstock, they're telling you, you know, we're, we're, we're running out of workers in these places, right? Uh, so that's one thing to talk about the macro economy. So I think maybe, Don, um, I might try to get on, or maybe we should try to get on one or more of these people that are pushing back against immigration and have a serious conversation about why that is. You know, they're talking about yeah. labor productivity, and if you squeeze the workforce, you lose the low-end jobs, and you push up, you know, labor productivity, and you push up wages. But I don't know that that model plays when you look at what's happening now with, with so many boomers retiring. I think we're into a totally different dynamic now, and I'm I'm completely for a continued focus on immigration. I think the federal government is doing the right thing, but I am a little concerned about this growing pushback among the economist community uh, around the immigration levels. Yeah, just let me add one statistic that I, you know, looked at a while ago. So the number of uh, Atlantic Canadians that will reach retirement age uh, between 2015, when I looked at the data, and 2030, we're halfway to that point right now, is 260,000. 260,000 Atlantic Canadians will reach retirement age. And this has been known forever that we're going to run into a labor issue. You know, we have it in our hospitals because doctors and nurses are retiring in in huge numbers and they haven't planned for it. We don't have enough people in the pipeline to replace them. This has been a problem that was for, you know, foreseeable decades ago. And so, uh, you know, this is the other challenge that we face in our region is the policy sort of construct to be able to support growth now, which is a different reality than this region has had for a really, really long time. So that'll be a very interesting thing for us to continue to explore. And and just to clarify briefly on that before we, we dive into the questions. So, David, I know you guys, you know, in the last year in particular, you've had very thoughtful conversations about, you know, ma- managing growth and wanting to see growth. But, you know, but looking to how we can increase the supply of housing, how we can uh, increase the supply of doctors and, and improve health care. And so all the ways that we can actually grow the population, but grow it sustainably. What you're, what you're experiencing and what you're reading and who you're talking to in terms of the economists, that, that's, they're talking about more economic questions, not, not those, do we have the supports for the growth? Yeah, so the, the both, 
right? So there are people that are genuinely concerned about the cost of housing, about you know, about the rising homelessness and things like that because of uh, immigration and the fact that it's getting even harder to access the healthcare system. So I think that's a real issue. But I think that hopefully can be addressed through public investment. Like that's, you know, if you have a thousand more people living in your community, you've got to have services for those thousand people. So that's a straight economic issue, right? Let's invest in the services. You know, we need more people giving the driver's test. Right, because you have all these immigrants flowing in, and we need we need to all these newcomers need to take the driver's test. So that's a huge issue. But no, I'm talking about another issue where where sort of philosophically, there's lots of people now starting to say, you know, that's too many immigrants nationally, and let's let's do what they're doing in the states and some other places. Let's just sort of crank it down, and uh, and let's watch the magic happen. Right, uh, companies will have to buy more technology and invest in equipment, and wages will go up, and and the whole thing will be great. And I just think that, that we're into a structurally different situation now. I think you can do that on a sectoral basis. You can go into the food service sector and say, are there ways to use technology to drive down your the amount of labor you need? And I think that's great. Let's do that on a sectoral basis. But as Don said, the population and workforce is the feedstock of growth. Uh, and that's what we need to focus on in this region. And, and uh, you know, if you look at what's going on in the U.S. right now, you've got small communities in the Midwest offering $10,000 per person to try and steal people from other communities. Uh, these are chambers of commerce offering cash grants to get people to come. Now, you may say, oh, that's great. But at a macro level, all that's doing is, is, is bidding up labor in these small communities all across the Midwest and all across the U.S. So that's not the solution. The solution is flow in lots of people like we have been doing in many places across this country for decades and then use it as a feedstock to foster economic growth and critically replace these jobs that the boomers are retiring from like healthcare and construction right now we need more houses than ever and 30 percent of our construction workforce is 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 at the door of retirement all these trades all these plumbers all they're, they're heading out the door uh, even as we need more housing. So I, I think we, we, we keep the pedal to the metal. I don't think we have to grow. The Moncton grew at 5.4% last year. That's that's probably done. That's probably too much. We're too looking much, at yeah. two two and a half percent per year on a sustained basis. And that would be fine. And I think we'll settle down around that. But, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, we need solid population growth uh, across this region. And I'd be nervous because this is what happens in Canada, right? If the federal government says, okay, you're right, we're coming down to 400,000 immigrants a year, who's going to lose? Is it going to be Toronto that's going to lose? Vancouver that's going to lose? Or who's going to lose here? Atlantic Canada will be the loser because we don't have the population base and the votes. And if you look at who's been the winner in the last three years from immigration, it's been us. The Toronto, you know, in these places, sure, they're still attracting lots of immigrants. But the real winners, if you look at the numbers, have been places like Halifax and St. John and Moncton and Charlottetown and, 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 uh, and Summerside. So we need to keep our, the pedal to the metal on immigration, make sure we have the services to support growth, uh, and then turn our attention to what are those sectors that are going to drive economic growth in the future. Because as Herb Emery has pointed out, population growth alone is not enough to support a thriving economy. You have to have export sectors, and, uh, and that's what we'll be looking at a lot in uh, 2023. I also want to add one thing that, uh, you know, I think is really, really important. I, I think that Atlantic Canada is becoming a destination of choice for other Canadians. You know, that hasn't been the case forever. So now we're getting a lot of immigration and it, and it's not just, it, it, it continues after COVID. The major part of COVID uh, is over. People are still deciding this is a really good place to live. 
And so population growth is made up of both immigrants and people, other Canadians deciding that they want to live in Atlantic Canada. That's number one. Number two, we're retaining our own youth for the first time in generations. Very few of our youth have to leave to go somewhere else because there's so many good opportunities here. That's great for everybody, believe me. So there's, there's, there's good outcomes that are happening. You know, the fact that we are now a destination of choice, not just for other people living elsewhere, but for our own, you know, uh, families uh, wanting to stay in this region. And, and that's got to be really positive uh, looking ahead. I think on on that point, I think it was a piece that you wrote sometime last year, David, but you also, I think you pointed out in some StatsCan data from last year that even a lot of the people moving in from other parts of Canada are, are young. So it's not just a matter of we're not losing our young people as much as we were, but we're also bringing in more young people. Yeah, that's correct. All right, guys. Well, these uh, these themes that are just going to keep coming up actually through the questions, because as you can imagine, a lot of the concerns that preoccupied us last year also are preoccupying people this year. So let's let's dive into uh, the questions. So the first one I have here is from John Wishart. He's the CEO of the Chamber of Commerce of Greater Moncton. And uh, his question is this, with the New Brunswick government looking at a record budget surplus for 2022-2023, should government's priority be, can be continuing to pay down the net debt or use some of that newfound money for urgent priorities such as healthcare or a little of both. Why don't I go to you, Don, first on that one? Yeah, so uh, the Higgs government's already paid down their debt. Uh, I don't know how much they've paid it down, but it's less than it was 12 months ago, uh, which I think is a good thing. I, uh, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not in favor of uh, the kind of increases in, in debt that we've had over decades in this region. It was fine in a low, in, uh, you know, low interest environment, uh, but uh, when those... Uh, you know, loans come due, uh, they're going to be uh, at a much higher rate. The cost uh, is going to be much higher. And, uh, it, you know, you wouldn't do it if you're running your own household. Why do you do it uh, if you're running a government? Having said that, uh, as I mentioned, I, I think that governments are going to be the beneficiary of a lot more revenue coming in because of the growing population and the economies that go with that. They have a little bit more choice. Now, there's going to be a lot of pressure on that extra money uh, for things like healthcare. And believe me, we could put every dollar, every dollar to, uh, collected from taxpayers into healthcare, and it still would not be enough, in my opinion, because it's so badly managed. And uh, so that's the, that's the challenge. Um, so I guess my preference would be you know, that you that you continue to try to whittle away over time, not too aggressively, but keep reducing debt. Try not to run deficits and 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 invest uh, the extra money into the the kind of social areas that are so important to support a growing population, including affordable housing. You know, affordable housing is something that you know it's not a private sector responsibility. You know, affordable housing has to be subsidized at some level. I think most people, most taxpayers, don't have a problem with uh, you know subsidizing affordable housing. Uh, but that that's more a government role than a private sector role. You know, so that's you know I think they've got to balance. In other words, the the the, the extra revenues that they're coming in uh, appropriately. Think about it this way: they could reduce the long term debt. It actually frees up money. It frees up money every year that goes to pay for interest. I don't know what the interest payments are in New Brunswick, but you know, there are, I think there are a hundred million dollars in Nova Scotia, something like that. It's been a while since I looked at it. Well, if interest rates go up two or 3%, <laughs> that becomes a bigger number, much bigger. And it takes away from other spending. 
Don, I think the last time you looked was 1973. The interest payment in New Brunswick on the, is around 500 to 600 million a year. Uh, Whoa, that's, okay. the, that's the cost to service the, the public debt. And as you pointed out, as interest rates go up and that debt gets rolled over at higher interest rates, that could be a, a risk. So I think it's a real issue. For me, uh, Ernie Steves, the finance minister, plays electric guitar in my church praise band. So I get to talk Ooh. to him every once in a while between, uh, you know, after the service and before the service. So I get a little bit of inside juice from Ernie. Uh, I think they're worried that this growth is not sustainable. In other words, in, they, they're trying to figure out how much of this is sort of short, short term, sort of post-pandemic related revenue and how much of it's structural. In other words, it's going to continue to go every year because if you give uh, a huge pay increase to the public sector, that's every year. That's not just one year. Right. So when you look at these kind of things that 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 are step change in your costs, you have to make sure you've got the revenue coming in. So I think mm-hmm. that but I agree with Don, I think this revenue is not cyclical. A lot of it is structural. For example, federal transfer payments for health and social transfers are about five thousand dollars a person. So New Brunswick's population now is up about fifty thousand. So that's two hundred fifty million every year from the federal government alone. Before you think about one dollar of tax revenue from HST, from income tax, from property tax, before you think of $1, they're getting $250 million a year just from the feds from transfers. And so I think a lot of that is structural and they do need to make the right investments. I, I you know, the idea of, you know, modestly paying down debt is symbolic, you know, keeps your debt, uh, your, your debt uh, rating with the rating agencies in line. So I'm okay with that. But I think, as I said earlier, you've got to invest in public services to support growth. And I, and I don't think they're keeping up with that because I think they're worried that, A, the growth is not going to be there, B, the tax revenue is not going to be there. But I think we have to be a little more optimistic uh, and we do need to make those investments. But Don's right. Healthcare is a special thing. Healthcare is a black hole. The more you pump into it without structural change, it may not do a whole lot. So hopefully we can talk to some leaders this year to try and figure out what that uh, what that is. But I've always said I'd like to see healthcare costs uh, tied to GDP growth or some other measure even population growth, um, because, you know, before it was running out of control, it was running way ahead of GDP and population growth. But then it sort of, at least in New Brunswick, then they just sort of cranked it down and there was very little growth in spending at all in real terms. And so there was no, there was no sort of pattern to it. So I think there needs to be some, you know, a new plan, a new way of doing things. And we did talk to Stephen McNeil about this new communities of practice and this idea of not having a family doctor anymore, which will be interesting for the listeners. But I do think there must be new ways and better ways to do healthcare. But at the end of the day, right now, they just can't find the workers. They, they actually have the money. There's not enough nurses to hire. There's not enough specialists to hire. And so right now, it's just a straight labor force, a healthcare labor force issue that has to be addressed. Well, the, the next question that we have is, is related, still related to, to finances and to, uh, and to priorities set by the government. Um, and it comes in from, uh, by email from, from one of your listeners, Ross Horgan. And uh, his question is, pre-budget consultations for 2023 are open until February 10th, 2023 for Finance Canada. Is there anything I should do, know to do best to advocate for small modular reactors and economic prosperity in Atlanta, Canada in these federal, in these public federal consultations? And this comes thanks from a longtime listener of the podcast. So I botched the reading of that a little bit, but I think he, he wants to know how to best advocate for a sector that you guys have also uh, advocated for and you've done interviewing on. Um, so how, how do you see uh, promoting that best in, in New Brunswick? Uh, 
and maybe even Nova Scotia, which is a more complicated conversation. I know. So well, it's, it's certain. It, it, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I, I kind of ribbed Don about it, but Don has actually been asking these politicians in Nova Scotia, you know, the Amera or other people that we talk to about that, and and we're getting positive responses. So I think there's an increasing understanding in Nova Scotia. I'll let I'll let Don speak to that, but I will say this: if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., the federal government act, they have put a ton of money on the table, and that includes for nuclear energy, and those are cash subsidies. I think it's. $13 a megawatt hour or something straight subsidy for nuclear might be 30, but I think it's 13. Um, and so I think the federal government needs to look at that. I mean, we have to be competitive. So it may, that may not be the solution, but there's got to be ways that we can continue to support the growth of clean energy like SMRs. There's, you know, for the last 15 years, there's been subsidies to support and develop solar and wind all across Canada. You know, lots of feed-in tariff rates and everything else to support that sector. So maybe we do need to do a little more to kickstart SMRs. And I think that would be the discussion to get the feds to firmly put nuclear energy alongside other renewable energy sources. Uh, and then if there's a need for, for strategic support or tax breaks, uh, maybe that should be on the table. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, my advice is, like, you know, let's keep the conversation going because uh, nuclear has a bad rep in, 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 in the general population. It seemed to be unsafe, even though in Canada, you know, the, the record for nuclear power is really quite spectacular. Uh, the new generation of SMRs uh, are reportedly uh, even more safe than you know the can-do reactors which which have a reputation of being among the safest reactors in the world uh so you know there's a lot of fear related to uh nuclear in fact in nova scotia they banned uh, nuclear uh not only did they ban nuclear they banned uh mining uranium you know because of it's really a political thing not based on good science yet if you look at the <laughs> if you look at the green policy for the nova scotia government guess what Nuclear is in that document. So I think there's a recognition by governments. And, and in fact, the federal government just you know, announced a big uh, financial support for the Darlington development of a SMR in, in Ontario. So the, the federal government, is, I think, is on side, as is almost all the governments uh, in the Western world. You know, uh, Japan has decided to go and double their nuclear capacity. Uh, Germany, which closed down nuclear plants, has now decided that that's probably not a good idea, you know, and, and, and so there, there's a turn in favor of nuclear across the world right now. The problem is, is that the, the, the general public need to catch up on it. And I just want to say one other thing about small modular reactors. They've been around for decades. They, you know, they power submarines, nuclear submarines and, and um, you know, aircraft carriers. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't think there's ever been an incident related to uh, a problem with those small modular reactors. So they've actually proven themselves for a long time. And not only that, here's the other thing that's really important about small modular reactors. They can be assembled and built in a factory and then shipped to the final location, you know, which means there's an industry opportunity, especially in New Brunswick, become a hub for uh, SMR technology and production. And so there's a big economic opportunity that I don't think we should lose sight of. Yeah. And, and the only thing I would add too, is it, it's, it's interesting to have, you know, this be a Nova Scotia question and a New Brunswick question, because they, they seem like two very different worlds, right? Cause in, 
I was having a conversation with an, uh, a huddle editor based in Halifax just yesterday. And, and in New Brunswick, the conversation seems to be, it's not that nobody is opposed to it on safety grounds, but that conversation seems to be not the one that preoccupies people here. It's more on cost. There, I live very near that that nuclear facility, Point La Pro. I don't sense any, there's no fear for for people who live in this area around it. Most of the issues would have to do with with cost. And and I guess because we've had nuclear here for a long time, the questions in Nova Scotia might still revolve more around more around the safety issues, I suppose. Yeah, well, I've seen recent uh, uh, research and, uh, you know, jurisdictions that have nuclear have a more favorable opinion to it than uh, jurisdictions that don't have nuclear. And, and, and why is that? It's because they've had the experience of living with nuclear for decades and they have not they, they have not encountered any problems with it. And so I think that, you know, that that life uh, experience uh, is really important in terms of your attitudes towards any subject. And, and, and I think that that's a that's a really meaningful to under, understand that, that you know, once people get used to the idea of nuclear and see the benefits of nuclear, maybe the attitudes can can change over time. Look, the onus is on the industry to put a model in place that's cost competitive. And we've had at least two people on our podcast last year that said the cost, the long-term cost per kilowatt hour for nuclear energy, SMR in, in, in energy is going to be competitive with other sources of energy. So now the proof is in the pudding. I think it is right. If, if, if it's too expensive, uh, it probably won't take off. But remember, you, we're talking about baseload power here that doesn't ebb and flow with the wind or the sun. You don't need backup battery power. There's lots of other issues that benefit SMR. So even if the cost per kilowatt hour is slightly higher, if all other things considered, the true cost per kilowatt hour is similar, you know, I think that's really what we're, we're trying to go for here. Nobody's saying that SMRs and nuclear are going to replace wind, solar, and every other form of electricity. We're saying as part of a balanced mix where you need to have sort of the base load power and then variable power that sits on top, uh, that, that nuclear could continue to play that role uh, across the Maritimes. And then, as Don pointed out, then hopefully we get some cluster economic benefits and get lots of high-paying jobs and taxes uh, as a result of the sector. The other thing I just want to mention is that uh, with nuclear power, once you have uh, set it up, the cost actually doesn't increase as rapidly as other forms of energy because the, the, you know a lot of them are fixed in the in the construction of the plant or whatever. And I'm assuming the same thing would happen with SMRs. And the other thing with uh, SMRs is that you can string them together. You can start with 100 megawatts and you can just keep adding to them as you need them. So this is what uh, the Port of Baldoon in our conversation with Denis Caron uh, talked about. You know they want to have uh, you know they want to have 10 100 uh, megawatts of uh, SMRs to to generate uh, hydrogen power to support industry and to be able to produce ammonium for export. You know, so the uses of uh, SMRs are varied. It's not just in terms of generating energy, but it's in terms of, of providing green energy, which is right now very hard to do. You know, the hydrogen produced in Canada right now is done by natural gas. And, you know, there's not there's not a ton of it, but there's there's a, there's a fair amount. But, you know, for us to take advantage of hydrogen, I, maybe small uh, modular reactors is one of the uh, uh, energy sources to provide that that green uh, hydrogen. Well, thanks, uh, Ross, for that great question. And I think it's going to we're going to continue to talk about 
these green energy solutions, you know, this year. And, and I, know, I know from my point of view too, one of the big contributions of the show last year was actually the really rich conversations that you guys had around the potential green energy solutions and developments in the region from hydrogen to wind to, to SMRs. And it's going to be something that we continue to talk about uh, this year. Um, don't forget, don't forget title. And title, of course. And I, <laughs> I look out my window, Don, at the Bay of Funding. So <laughs> I know I yeah, should that's never I forget title. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so th- with the next question, we're going to shift back into the discussion on population. Um, and it comes from Krista Wetmore. And she's the board chair for Uptown uh, St. John, an organization that, that re- represents uh, businesses in the Uptown area of St. John. And she asks, although New Brunswick has achieved record population growth over the past few years, labor shortage continues to be a significant problem for all sectors. How do you predict the shortage? How long do you predict the shortage will last? And what can employers do to overcome this problem? Well, I think the economist should answer this one. (laughs) All right. So I'll take that one. So if you look, for example, at Moncton, which had record population growth last year, uh, uh, about Three thirty-three hundred of those folks were immigrants, and thirty-nine hundred were folks from Ontario. And the folks from Ontario um, aren't necessarily filling the jobs here. They're coming here for low-cost housing for other issues, but many of them are bringing the jobs with them. So this is one of the problems with population growth that it's not tied to labor market demand. Where, whereas increasingly, we're trying to target our immigrant uh, flow to actual jobs and opportunities that were here. So, so, so I think we need to continue to bring in immigrants, but I think to answer Krista's uh, um, question, we're going to have to have sector by sector strategies. And I've had a chance to work on a few. I've worked on one for tourism. I've presented to the dentists. They're having shortage of, of, of hygienists and dental assistants in New Brunswick. So we're going to have to have sector by sector strategies, whether it's nurses or other healthcare professionals or construction. Uh, and you look at what's the local talent pipeline for those sectors and how many people are we going to have to bring from international locations, whether it's construction or whatever sector. But I don't think we're going to solve this problem until we get a handle on it and actually start looking at it on a sector by sector basis. And this is new for governments. We've had surplus labor for years, right? And uh, so now all of a sudden it's like the Titanic, you know, you've, it's, you know, we're in a situation where we've got the exact opposite problem and you have to sort of, you know, shift or steer the ship of government away from uh, away from uh, an old model with really high unemployment to a new model with very low unemployment. Uh, and I think those changes are being made right now. But I suspect this problem will last quite some time. But I'd like to see governments doing sector by sector, working with industries um, on plans. And Nova Scotia has sector councils that, that do a good job of that. New Brunswick doesn't have those councils, but they have other ways of interacting with industry. And I'd like to see all of that, particularly on, a, on, on the sectors that we care about, the export sectors, but even sectors like local service sectors. We need to have plans to make sure we have enough workers for these sectors. And in fact, I think this is one of the most important policy areas for the government. The, they failed in this area in the past. The, you know, if you look at the shortages of labor that we have right now, as I mentioned earlier, this was all you know, we could forecast that 25 years ago, just looking at the demographic changes and the and the population growth numbers. We knew that we would not have enough of uh, of labor at this point in time. It, you know, the baby boomers group uh, has been incredibly influential in the economy. Uh, uh, this is not a surprise to anybody. Government uh, they didn't keep an eye on the wheel 
and and as a result, we're in the current situation. So let's let's learn from that. Uh, uh, I think that uh, David is one hundred percent right. You 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 should be able to go in and and determine uh, by forecast the needs and whatever job category you want to take a look at, whatever sector you want to take a look at. But I would add one other thing to to the equation. You know, Canada has, has got probably the most sophisticated immigration strategy in the world. And we had, we had uh, Sean Frazier, the Minister of Immigration, on. You know, they've actually done a pretty good job on this. And one of the things that Canada done, has done particularly well is they, they only, they're, they're trying to attract, you know, skilled labor. You know, that's been, that's what they, that's what they focus on. The problem is that we also need unskilled labor. Uh, you know, and in fact, it's the unskilled labor that may be the biggest problem over the long term because, you know, we have a lot of native-born uh, Canadians who are, you know, not particularly interested in certain types of jobs. And so you think about, uh, you know, uh, long-term care facilities as an example. I mean, that's a, that's an area where a lot of immigrants are coming in from places like the Philippines and otherwise, who, you know, that kind of work is 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 good work for for people coming from those countries. Well, it's not as good work for people who were born here. So we have to have a balance, I think, now and 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 maybe open up the doors to, you know, less skilled uh, people coming in to fill some of those. Uh, jobs at the lower end of the economy that are so critical uh, and 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 put pressure on things like healthcare, things like the hospitality industry and, and other uh, other kinds of work. Look, thirty years ago, I worked in uh, in uh, Jasper Park as a student, and almost everybody working in Jasper Park was not did not live there. Right, they all came in from other parts of Canada. And so even in something like the tourism sector, we have to think about where those workers are going to come from. And we interviewed Digby Pines. You remember that, Don? And increasingly, they're bringing in immigrants and newcomers yeah. to work the jobs in tourism. So this, is, this shouldn't even be a light bulb moment. We've been doing it in Canada for 30 years, right? Jurisdictions that want to grow a tourism sector or have a, a workforce for tourism are going to have to bring in students or immigrants from other parts of the world to so, to meet that that uh, demand and we need to do that on a sector by sector basis the, the next question is also connected to workforce and and it, it comes from uh, Krista Ross the CEO of the Fredericton Chamber of Commerce and uh, the question reads what is the solution for the housing crunch that is impacting individuals but also businesses trying to attract workers and businesses who have employees who can't afford rent? and expect employers also experiencing the inflationary impact to fill the financial gap. Specifically, what is the government's role in addressing the supply of housing and also the rising costs that impact both businesses and, and, uh, and workers? Well, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, I, like, I, I think the government has kind of two roles. First one is related to the regulations uh, to get approval for you know, development to go ahead. It's a quagmire from when, when you talk to developers, you know, the, the length of time, the loops that they have to jump through, you know, it's just, it, it, it's crushing to some extent. So, you know, that we have to streamline the approval process for, um, new projects. That's number one. Uh, you know, the second thing that government can do, and I think this is uh, probably more the feds and the provincial government, not the local governments in terms of affordable housing, they have to have a, a specific investment in affordable housing. They have to put money there to support the development of, of, of housing that is, is really not, it, it's not, it, it's not, doesn't belong in the regular market. You know, you can't, you can't let a supply and demand, you know, uh, 
deal with affordable housing, especially in the, in the current situation. So you have to be able to support a strategy that allows a certain number of affordable housing units to be built every year. And as I said earlier, be subsidized by, by governments. And I think that's the only answer. And by the way, you can also have regulations when you approve big developments, you know, with, you know, a lot of units to have a certain number of those designated as affordable housing. So you can have the private sector play a role in the approval process as long as they're prepared to, to put some affordable units in those buildings. But let me say this, you know, we're not going to solve the housing market anytime soon. Uh, you know, I'm doing some work in, in, in St. John right now, uh, Mark, and, you know, one of the problems that St. John has, it doesn't have enough developers <laughs> to, to, build the, to, to build the units. You know, so this is the classic problem of having a, you know, a very low housing market with only a few builders to suddenly, you know, uh, lots of demand and not enough builders. You know, so you don't solve that problem overnight. You know, you have to develop a new brand, a, a new breed of uh, developers to come along and see the opportunity. This is what a free market enterprise kind of does. You know, they see the opportunity, they move in to, to fill that, that gap. And it's starting, it's starting to happen. It's just that it's, it, it, you know, the gap is still there. It's going to be there, I, I don't know for how many years, but it's going to be there for a while. And David and I have talked about other, other opportunities like modular housing, for instance, is a quick way to develop housing. We also have to have the ability to construct multiple units in, in, in downtown cores without worrying that it's more than four stories high. Like, you know, we've got to adjust our, our expectations of a, of a, especially in urban areas that you're not going to, not going to have the quaint old, you know, city of, of Halifax as you did in the past. And I know there's a lot of resistance to that idea, but people have, a, have to have a place to live. And, you know, we only have so much land and, 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 and there's got to be some density built into the development of, of, of our, of our communities. Yeah, I would just say that all those workers that build the all those World Cup stadiums in what was it, Cutter? Uh, I'd, I'd bring all those workers here. I think fundamentally we do have a construction workforce problem. If you Stats Canada tracks housing starts, uh, housing's under housing under construction and housing completions, and we have record levels uh, houses under construction, and we're just not completing them fast enough. So this is another part of the problem. We just don't have enough workers. Don's right. We don't have enough developers. And what's happening is that the whole system is thinking, yeah, we'll just we'll just calibrate back down to where we used to be. And what we're trying to say is, no, we've this is a step change. We're going to need this many houses now every year, not this many. And to get to this many, we need this many more uh, developers, this ma this many more workers. You know, this government policy, et cetera, et cetera. Because uh, I think the whole system is waiting for us to just sort of fall back. If you even the banks, when you look at their housing starts forecast for 2023, they all ratcheted down for New Brunswick, and that they actually projected we're going to have less housing starts in 2023 than we had in 2022. That's a disaster if that happens. But that's just the way the the the, the mind works, right? You're a forecaster. You assume New Brunswick is going to be going back to its old ways, and you're going to have less housing starts. We need to get it out there that no, this is this is a step change, uh, and we need to make sure we have the infrastructure and the workforce to support that. The next question takes us back to the earlier uh, conversation you guys had started around around taxes, and it comes from uh, Patrick Sullivan, the CEO of the Halifax Chamber of Commerce. Nova Scotia just had a report that recommended accelerating the move to a fifteen dollar minimum wage. The burden of the increase will come from employers and ultimately consumers in the form of increased prices that fuel inflation. When will government start to take responsibility by reducing taxes so that ultimately people have more take-home pay? 
Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Newfoundland and Labrador have the lowest basic personal exemptions in Canada. When increasing those provide more money for every taxpayer. Nova Scotia just announced they had an additional $1.3 billion in revenue this fiscal year, but no improvements to Nova Scotians' take-home pay. Yeah, I think that this is a big issue right across the region. As I mentioned before, the problem that governments have had, they've had the same number of taxpayers, generally speaking, for decades, paying an ever-increasing uh, you know, cost of government. And of course, uh, we ended up with two things, a, a, a really old you know, population and the highest taxes in the country. We, we still have the highest taxes in the country. And then we have some added problems like in Nova Scotia where they don't have index, indexation uh, of, of, uh, of the tax rates to keep up with inflation. So Nova Scotians are even worse off than the other three provinces because they get bracket creep, uh, you know, just through inflation and, and get up into the higher tax rates, which which have no benefit to them because they're just keeping up with inflation. So, you know, this is a, the, you know, we need to spend more time sort of uh, pressuring governments to start thinking about the kind of environment that we want to create for our population down here. You know, I mentioned earlier, you know, how are we going to attract people to come and stay here if we continue to have these high rates of tax? You know, it's going to be very difficult if we don't get them in order. And, and, and you know, they can start with, you know, bringing up the, the personal tax exemptions to to the norm in Canada. That would help. They could, could make sure that, uh, in the case of Nova Scotia, that the indexation of the rates keep up with inflation. That could happen. And and then, then gradually they can take the top rate, which is, you know, I don't know, is it 52.5% of every dollar or what is it, $100,000? It's a, a really low number goes to the government. Well, really? You know, how about people wanting to invest here? You want to come and invest here at, at those kinds of rates? Makes it very unattractive. So, you know, this is a big issue for government. And, and they're not used to thinking about it this way. They're not thinking that, oh, my God, all this new revenue. What, what should we? Let's spend it. Well, let's give, let's give a little bit of a dividend to the existing taxpayers and say, you know what? We're going to take a little bit of that and we're going to bring the rates a little bit down to be a little bit more competitive with the rest of the world. How about that? And so, you know, this is conversations that we need to challenge uh, political leaders on in, in this region in particular. Yeah, it's a complicated question, uh, Mark. The reality is, you know, we don't have a lot of people working at the minimum wage anymore. We have, I don't know, the last numbers I looked at, maybe 9 or 10% of the workforce in New Brunswick and a big chunk of those were students. So really, from a public policy perspective, you know, we should never want to have the head of a household working at minimum wage. That's a recipe for poverty. Uh, but to have, you know, a second household income earner at minimum or, or students working at minimum wage, that's totally fine. They can get in the door and get experience. So I think the minimum wage discussion has always been a, a challenging one because people have, have it in their head, you know, this, this one person family with three kids working at minimum wage. And there's very little of that. There's some of that, but with all of the now the child tax credit supports and all of the other supports for these people from a tax perspective, you know, their, their, their household income is going to be much, 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 much higher than that. So I think that the reality is that I do think there's probably some uh, reason to move up the minimum wage because of inflation. I'm not a big fan of just keeping pushing up the minimum wage as some sort of solution to our problem because it's really not. Ultimately, we've got broader issues and challenges related to the tax system. What Don was talking about, the complexities around that are, are legion 
because we have relatively low income tax rates at the low end of the income tax scale and higher tax rates at the higher end of the scale. So if you're going to cut that top rate that Don was talking about, you're only going to help the richest people. Now, we need the rich people because they're paying all the taxes, right? And we've got lots of data on that. They're paying the bulk of the taxes. Um, but if you cut tax rates for them, you know, the, the, the headlines in, this, in the newspaper tomorrow are, you know, politicians give tax break to rich people. So it's a complicated file. And uh, I don't know the solution except to say that, uh, you know, um, Raising the minimum wage to 15 or even higher probably isn't the solution if you're trying to help people at the lower end of the, the scale. Uh, things like these child tax credits and other support programs that are targeted based on your income are a better solution. The next question comes from Paul McKinnon, the, the CEO of the of downtown uh, Halifax Business Commission. And it's one that I, I think a lot about um, just because I, I work in an office and I work in uptown St. John near a lot of the, the big office buildings that are still somewhat empty and the streets are still somewhat em- empty of people who went home to work uh, after the onset of the pandemic. And uh, Paul's question goes like this. We've been putting a lot of effort into better metrics as we track recovery, particularly sales, attracting people and investments. I think one of the burning questions for us is where will the hybrid work settle out? Recent reports from the Canadian Chamber indicate that 92% plus of downtown employees still come downtown at least sometimes for work. And uh, Avison Young is reporting that there's been an overall 50% return to offices at this point, and the numbers keep climbing. What do you guys think the new normal for, for work looks like from, from an office point of view? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we talk about it in our business, uh, you know, in, in the business that I'm involved in and in, in, in the business my brother's involved in, uh, we have 100% working back in the office. And uh, part of it is the nature of the work, obviously, but part of it is because we believe that the culture of the business can only really be developed when people work together. And it's hard to work together virtually. And and so, you know, I may, I guess we're contrarians in the sense uh, of this move to a hybrid model. And, uh, and, and, and it will probably work in some circumstances. But, you know, the things that an employer would ask are, are, are these kinds of questions. Am I getting productivity, the same level of productivity that I did before? That's a question that has not yet been answered. And, and, you know, uh, unless you're able to um, measure performance in a very concrete way, you know, human nature is human nature. Like, like, like I, I would be distracted working from home. I mean, there's too many things going on that would take me away from my work. Uh, and, and maybe others would as well. And, and, and there are people who work better from home, to be honest with you as well. They, they, they work in, they, they, you know, some, some of the work that they do is, uh, is, is better for them and, and, and they enjoy it. I get that. Uh, so I, I think we're going to end up, uh, not, uh, in the private sector. I don't, I don't want to, I want to talk about the public sector separately, but in the private sector, I think we're going to get back closer to where we were, uh, than maybe many people, uh, might expect. Now, in the public sector, it's a different story. And here's the problem with, you know, you know, I've been railing against the public sector as being an unfair competitor for labor in Canada for some time. Uh, you know, it used to be where the private sector had better salaries, but not, not the benefits weren't as good and they didn't have uh, pensions. And the public sector didn't have as good wages, but they had good benefits and, and good, uh, good pensions. Now... Uh, you know, public sector has all, all has has strengths in every every area. It's it's really unfair competition, 
And then the other side of it is the, the whole issue about productivity in the government, which is something that nobody wants to talk about. How much value are we getting per employee? Nobody talks about it. I don't think anything is measured. But so, you know, but they're going to allow uh, public sector employees basically to continue this hybrid model two or three days a week in the office, the rest at home. Fine, but count something. Tell me that we're getting value for those people working from home. You know, how many passports were processed working from home? Give me a number. If it's the same number as you did in the office, I'm okay with that. But they're not going to do that. You know that. I know that. And so I question the whole issue of productivity that, you know, that, 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 uh, that we're going to get from this. There's no been real measurement that I've seen that convinces me that it's better for the economy and at a personal level, that is better for the mental health of people uh, who are away from their colleagues on a consistent basis. Just quickly, the problem is that, that companies are now using this as a differentiator. So I talked to the managing partner of one of the big accounting firms, and they are taking kind of a hard line. Uh, they want people in the office three or four times a week, three days a week. And their competitors are saying, don't worry about it. You can work from home as much as you want. And they're losing young workers to these other companies. So it will become a differentiator. We'll see how it goes. I think Don's probably more optimistic. I suspect it'll be more like 50 or 60%. In the public sector, I think Don's right. That that horse has left the barn. I talked to one guy in New Brunswick that works in uh, public sector real estate. They're already shedding buildings. They're not renewing leases on buildings. Uh, I think the long-term trajectory for public sector work office workers will be many of them will work from home. You know, most, you know, will come in the office for maybe one day a week or something. And I think that, you know, the issue of productivity and all that needs to be discussed. But at the end of the day, the public sector, I think, is moving pretty hard toward the, the hybrid and the home-based uh, model, and we'll see how that goes. But I think from a downtown perspective, the Stats Canada tracks this with the real-time business index. I talk about it in my in my uh, uh, social media feeds. Uh, and uh, Moncton is just rocking it. Halifax is doing less great from that metric. Uh, but uh, there does seem to be quite a bit of return to the downtown from a restaurant perspective, from a shopping perspective, and from a work perspective. One thing, by the way, that uh, Paul McKinnon has uh, talked about recently, which I, I, I actually thought was a, was a good point. He said, we're, we're no longer a business, uh, uh, downtown biz, business development uh, organization. We're, we're a downtown community development organization. So they see uh, a change in the downtowns to, to be much more residential um, and, you know, uh, related to, you know, amenities and, and, and that, that's, that's really smart. So we don't have to depend as much on, on, on people working downtown to make the downtown work. Then I think that that's probably the direction you're going to see everywhere. Yeah. And I think, um, I had a conversation with, um, John Wishart from Moncton at one point last year about something similar. And, and I'm, I'm seeing that just in uptown St. John here, like the residential population, even though there some projects have slowed down, Don, as you pointed out in terms of development, there's, there is, there are more people living in our downtowns and that will definitely help offset some of those losses to people working more from home. Um, yes. The last, um, the last two questions are kind of interconnected infrastructure related questions. Uh, and, and the first one and connected also to our downtowns 
And the first one that I have is actually another one from from Paul, from Paul McKinnon from the uh, Downtown Halifax Business Commission. And his uh, his question is, uh, from a, a broader perspective, uh, we've seen phenomenal growth growth in our cities, in our city. Uh, public investments like the convention center and library spurred unprecedented private development between 2010 and 2020-22. What where should governments focus the next their next eight decade of investment to add to our city's prosperity? Well, first of all, we haven't had until only recently a focus on the downtown course. You know, it went away for a really long time. Uh, you know, both the downtown in Moncton, for instance, the downtown in St. John, where you live, and even the downtown in Halifax were ghost towns after after work hours. And uh, now that's all changed, frankly, because of residential development that's happening in each of those communities. But there's a lot more work to be done. It, you know, uh, in Halifax, as an example, you know, the Cogswell uh, redevelopment, is 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 a decade long project uh, that will transform um, the the downtown core even further and connect the you know the south end with the north end and 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 there's so much more work to be done in every urban core that I don't think they should take their attention off it. Uh, you know, I think it's, those are growth centers. Uh, you know, if the uptown of St. John is successful, it becomes a destination both for people living there and for people who don't live there, which creates economic activity. We certainly see it in Halifax. I mean, you come to Halifax, the downtown day and night is busy. And, and you know, that creates so much economic opportunity. And also, here's the other thing that's so important. It attracts young people. Young people want to live in urban communities that are thriving and, 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 and got a vibe to it. And, and so the attraction and retention of uh, young workers, I think, is, is sort of connected to continuing focus on building the urban cores, which have been left in decay for a long time. Uh, and, and, and there's still a lot of work to be done. David, I want to bring you into this uh, conversation, but I probably should do it via the next question, because the, the first one that Don took on was, was Halifax-centered. Uh, uh, and the next one is is Moncton related, so we can probably carry on this conversation about about infrastructure development with the next question, which comes in from one of the, one of the listeners uh, via LinkedIn, which is uh, his name is uh, John Herenga. In 2023, construction will begin on the redevelopment of the Atlantic Science Enterprise Center in Moncton. This project will be the largest federal financial investment since the construction of the Confederation Bridge. Please discuss the significance of the project to the regional economy and what business opportunities could this investment create for entrepreneurs? Yeah, so Serge Doucette is the DG over there, and I think we should have him on the podcast maybe in 2023 to talk about that project. It is huge. It's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, and the money has been allocated, so it's going ahead. It's going to involve uh, a, a complete rebuild of the Fisheries and Oceans building uh, there on the site uh, uh, near the hospital. I don't know if uh, people that don't know Moncton, it's not right downtown, but it's adjacent to downtown. Uh, but it's also going to bring in labs and facilities from Environment Canada, from the Canadian Food Inspection Agencies, other related entities in Moncton into one big center. They're going to share lab space. They're going to share talent. Uh, and it's going to be a major, major project. That's correct. Um, hopefully, it's going to drive more research, more high-value economic activity. It's, um, um, you know, uh, it is a research center for the federal government, relatively small compared to uh, the, the facilities in, uh, in Bedford in, in Halifax. 
But yeah, so it's a big one. Uh, absolutely. I didn't realize until I, I heard uh, from this gentleman that it was this second only to the Confederation Bridge. Obviously, that's on a specific project basis. But um, yeah, we should have them on in 2023 to talk about that exciting project. But it is going to certainly rejuvenate a little area between UDM and downtown. And there's a little sort of talk of having that as a a research corridor because you have the George Dumont Hospital there. You've got the Atlantic uh, Cancer Research Institute uh, Center for Precision Medicine there. Now you're going to have this huge facility right across the street. So there might be a little kind of research corridor there in, in Moncton. Yeah. And, you know, this is a, this is a good example of building a cluster around, you know, a certain practice area. It's the same as in St. John, uh, Mark, with the Integrated Health Initiative, which uh, recently had a, a significant infrastructure announcement for a, a new building to start to, that work. So, uh, you know, th this is what gives David and I such optimism. When, when we see these projects, these important projects coming together that takes advantage of a certain skill set or a certain, certain expertise in our communities, this is the basis of good economic development. You know, centers of excellence where people from all of the world want to work there because they've got a reputation of being among the best and that attracts talent. And so the more that we have of these, the more we're going to be able to attract the kind of talent that will you know, grow and, and, and lead to prosperity in our region. Well, I think this is a, a great place to to close, guys, on some of the optimism around some, around some of the big public and, and private investments uh, in in the region. Uh, do you have any final thoughts to add before we uh, end our conversation for today? So I, I just say that I've really enjoyed working with Don on the Insights podcast, and looking forward to twenty twenty three. Hopefully, we can even expand our listener base even even further. Uh, but it's I think it's been rewarding for me. And it's also, I think, the conversations we're having, I think we are, you know, uh, uh, telling the right stories and we're actually having some, I think, influence uh, over the direction of this region. And I think that's the whole point of, of doing this and I hope we continue to do it for a long time. Yeah, I've really enjoyed working with David, too. We, you know, we bring a, a good set of skills together, I think, and different perspectives to, uh, to address the issues that we look at. The other thing that I, I want to note is that I've learned so much through the podcast. I, and, you know, it's given me a great sense of optimism about the region. You know, that's, that's, that's something that, you know, I felt was missing in the region for a long time. You can really tell that something is happening here finally. You know, we just don't have, hopefully we don't screw it up, <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're on the right direction, it seems to me, and, and, and doing the podcast is very, uh, it's very educational, and, and hopefully other people are learning uh, about the great things that are happening here and the opportunities that, uh, that are evolving as a result of those opportunities. Yeah, and too, from my, my point of view, too, I call, I call myself your first listener because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the person that opens up the files and, and edits them e each week. And I mean, I'm, I'm learning a great amount just through, through editing your podcasts and, and listening to them. And so I, I know that listeners are, are getting the same experience. So uh, thank you. And uh, personally, I look forward to hearing your conversations over the next year. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Appreciate Mark. Thanks yeah, thanks for doing this. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.